Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is. Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Sarah Roberts is from the United Kingdom. She's a non-hunter. She's a journalist. She's a conservationist. She's worked as a grizzly bear researcher, a shark researcher. She's been around several African countries. And she recently attended the CIC One With Nature conference as a non-hunter. And when I saw this, I really wanted to have a conversation with her to see if her perceptions around hunting and hunters coming into the CIC conference changed based on the conversations that she was having with people that are fairly well-known and well-respected in the hunting community in terms of conversations around wildlife management, wolves, grizzlies, and human-wildlife conflict. I think you'll find this conversation absolutely fascinating because, again, she's a non-hunter thinking and discussing hunting. That's just a fascinating conversation. Let me ask this question. Sarah, you, are you a hunter? No. No, I've never no. actually hunted. I mean, I've fished for things, but I've never, I've never hunted anything in my life. No. Didn't grow up family, never hunted? Um, no, I live in England, so, you know, <laughs> not, not much left to hunt. You know, I've got, I've got friends um, in, in my, because I did grow up in a village, so I've got friends, you know, that still go after pheasants and things like that, but. It's not quite the same, no. <laughs> is it because, let me ask this, is it because you never had the opportunity to hunt? Is that why you think you're not a hunter? Or is there something else that is like, that's why I'm not a hunter? I would say cultural norms um, of, of what I'd been exposed to. Um, it just, you know, nobody around me hunted. Um, 
I also obviously grew up absolutely adoring animals, thus, you know, animal behaviourist. Um, so, you know, had a lot of pets, moved to the countryside um, when I was uh, nine to sort of a derelict farmhouse, which my parents did up and, and spent a lot of time in nature. And yeah, I was all about protecting wildlife and to me, hunting and wildlife protection weren't two things that went hand in hand um you know that was that was what I knew and what I that's all I all I've been exposed to I guess <laughs> essentially opposing paradigms right this sort of protectionist paradigm versus the conservationist paradigm absolutely yeah I mean it's it's um I say a cultural norm um for most people especially if they've never been exposed to it to to think that way because obviously killing just doesn't make sense right um, it does not make sense yeah to protect something yes yeah and then it's it's one of those situations isn't it where it's emptiest boxes make the loudest rattles um and uh unfortunately you know people and me included you know the less knowledge that i that i used to have um in the topic, the more I thought it was very much black and white and very simple. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, as I typically do, I do a terrible job of introducing people. We just jump in with hard-hitting questions, which I love because this is the whole point of our podcast. We don't mess around. We don't, you know, we just yeah, cut to the cut to the chase. So, Sarah Roberts, please introduce yourself. Um, okay, so uh, I guess I am an author. It's one of the easiest things. I, I have uh, multiple facets of what I do, but I'm a children's author um, and I also am an animal behaviourist. So I've spent a lot of my time uh, in the last 10 years working with wildlife around the world. So I've worked as a grizzly bear guide, I've worked in shark research um, and I've also worked in the African bush for a little while. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, and now I would say I spend a lot of my time as well, um, as a sort of a journalist, eco-journalist. So, um, I was lucky enough to, to go out to the CIC recent event, which is, I believe, why you've invited me on. <laughs> yeah, no, and I was super jealous because I think CIC and that one of, was it one of nature? One, one with nature. One yeah. with nature. Uh, was a fantastic assembly of people from all around the world um, with diverse ideas, but all sort of centralized around hunting and the role of hunting and the role of hunting and conservation. And um, yeah, I was, I was, you know, I'm good friends with Byron and I'm good friends with Alex. And so when I saw you pop onto this feed and I'm like, oh, let me see who this, you know, I don't know who this woman is because I've never seen Not her interact with you in this space. <laughs> and um, I started watching some of your videos and you're like, oh, I'm getting back into the content game. And mm. I was like, what is her content game? Let me have a look. And so I did a little bit of Instagram stalking. And I was like, all right, this, you know, it seems like she could have a, you know, a good hard hitting conversation because it, it clearly seems like, and maybe correct me here if I'm wrong. Did you have a different perception of hunting coming into CIC and did that perception change coming out of CIC? Do you know what's really funny? Byron would probably kill me for this, um, but I didn't really read up that much on what I was going to or what it was. So I was just like, one with nature, something abroad, haven't been abroad since COVID. Yes, like like Byron, love to hang out with those guys, sure it would be fun, absolutely. And it wasn't really until I got there that I was like, oh, this is uh, this is quite a big hunting event. 
like, ah, okay. No, this isn't a greenie event. Damn it. Okay, all right, this is this is what I was expecting. Um, but no, I, I had um. So, okay, I mean, my background's been been kind of varied. You know, I've been lucky enough to be exposed to quite a few different viewpoints, I, I think, over the years, more so than, than most people, you know, and, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I have always, after sort of a few years into my career, I've always kind of pushed myself to be like, right, you know, you need to be much more neutral. You need to sort of be able to have these conversations with people from all sides of the, the fence, otherwise nothing ever moves forward nothing ever changes and and also you know you don't necessarily have a valid opinion on something unless you can understand it from multiple different angles anyway totally agree I was kind of open-minded I would say about hunting I didn't I didn't know very much about it. it hadn't been massively on my radar I understood um a little more about trophy hunting in Africa that was probably the limit, I would say. I know. So, I- where were you in Africa? Um, so, 2014 and 2017 as well. Um, where were you specifically? Uh huh. So, so the first time I went out, I worked on um, a game reserve, literally getting up at the crack of dawn, going to bed um, at night, <laughs> following dwarf mongooses around a around a tiny little game reserve. Oh, amazing! Yeah, in Limpopo, um, and then. The, so just near Hood's great then. And then mm, mm. Uh, the second time was very much totally unplanned. I basically was on a on a um, filming trip in Bali and met a character who invited us on a road trip, ended up on a same-day flight into Durban and ended up in a car from Durban down to Cape Town with multiple stops with uh, three random surfers that we met and then going from uh, that trip um, up to um, Namibia and through Botswana with another dude that I that I'd met on that trip. Um, so yeah, that one was a lot less planned. And then I went back uh, three months later and sort of did um, some some filming um, out there, back up in Hudspray again and into Botswana. Um, so yeah, at, at various different situations. Um, but and in any of those situations, hunting involved at all, or just sort of actually, yeah. So not not hunting me personally, um, but the the ex, shall I say, or the guy that I did the um, Botswana crazy trip with. Maybe yes. So he was a, a big hunter. Um, okay. So he. Although, like, I'd known him through being in bars with him and stuff. <laughs> so I hadn't had, had to see that world. I, I was a little bit more aware of it. Um, and then, obviously, when I went into um, Botswana, we were meeting up with various different friends of his. But, you know, Afrikaans couldn't understand a word he was saying half the time because it was all in another language. So a lot of it went over my head. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was aware. I'll I tell you the point that I'd got to, and I, I kind of came to this conclusion in 2014, was realisation of, you know, once we put fences up, we've we've stopped the animals from moving certain directions. We have a duty of care to look after those animals. We also have put a value on the animal's head. So in terms of poaching and then in terms of, um, you know, basically the drought that seemed to be getting worse every single year I returned to mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I understood that there was head counts being done. I understood that in every game reserve there were calls being done. And I understood, you know, well, if you're going to do that, 
why not let somebody else pay to take the shot and have that money to then go back into protecting the rest right. of the animals. So that side of it made sense. And I'd say that was probably as far as I'd ever tread into the hunting world, just to have that little penny drop moment there. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as like what I learned at CIC and that level of it, that was just like <laughs> a bit mind blown again. That was another level. Um, so yeah, I think I had like a, a fairly open mind, but I also was conscious, don't get me wrong, um, yeah. the perceptions, unfortunately, in my side of the industry are very strong about what's right and wrong from, from quite a lot of people in all different mm-hmm. levels, you know. And, right. um, and as somebody that's sort of looking for work as a presenter in the conservation world, I obviously knew that, you know, oh, it's a bit risky how far in you want to delve into that topic um, because of other people's preconceptions of it. And then right. the decision I had to sort of make early on, which was like, look, I either distance myself and protect my reputation without any risk or I go, you know what, actually, this is really interesting. This is a concept that needs further conversation around it and needs people to understand it more. And I just think, excuse my French, but fuck it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit bigger than me and a little reputation. Sure, sure, sure. What are the, um, if I could pick a little bit, you, you mentioned there's a couple of things that sort of, as you said, just sort of blew the back of your brain out when you were talking and having conversations at CIC. Mm. <clears throat> what are the com- some of the things that just like you were like, whoa? Um, I think... I had a very, very interesting conversation um, with with somebody that, that works up in Wyoming, um, and she was talking about the, the wolf situation there. Yes, Johnson. Yes, yeah. And yeah. um, she was talking about the wolf situation there, but we also touched on grizzly bears. Now, grizzly bears, for me, are one of those animals, like having worked as a grizzly bear guide, that eminently in my stomach, I'm like, oh, you know, like I can understand African hunting and the fences up but like the idea of somebody just wanting to shoot a grizzly you know there's no fences they're totally wild you know they have to cover a huge area and they're also going through a lot anyway in terms of like salmon return and um hardships from, from climate change and for me having literally spent days and well months watching individual grizzly bears watching their personality knowing they have individual personalities and traits and they were to us named because we were taking tourists to go and see them so for me the idea of anybody ever wanting to hunt any of those was just like felt sick like how could you possibly do that it's almost like my friend you wanted to shoot you know and that's the kind of strong horrible feelings and and i imagine that's that's how a lot of people feel about yeah i agree it's like just makes you sick to your core that you want to protect it love it because you've, you've personified this animal not just that but also in its own right it's a spectacular creature <laughs> no no debate um so for me that was probably the the key species where i was like you know i can probably get my head around this i can probably get my head around that but how in god's name could anyone ever want to shoot a grizzly um but then we had a we had a chat and um, she was talking about the situation they have in, in that particular county. And um, 
basically the bear populations are, are stable um, in terms of the scientists. And, uh, you know, they they did say that they could have a hunt that particular year. And they, they were going to release, I think it was around just over 20 grizzlies um, mm-hmm. to go and hunt, shoot these grizzlies. And unsurprisingly, the, the conservationists and the, the public were outraged and it didn't happen. And, you know, I thought about it. I was like, I wonder if I actually signed a petition against that. That just sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> There was even a, a, a situation where the NGOs were actually buying the tags themselves. Yeah, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And and from my perspective, looking in, it was like absolutely, absolutely protect the bears. I love the bears. They've got so many problems. You know, one of the last wild things left. Like, how could you possibly even? And how could you really know from account that they're actually stable because they travel so far? And you, I was like, oh yeah, absolutely right. What I didn't realise, and this is the flip side, this is one of the first things that totally blew my mind. So they didn't have the hunt. What they did do is normal tourism, but in normal tourism, you have the bears exposed to more and more people. I know because I was one of the people that would expose bears to people. I was one of the people that habituated bears to people, you know, So, so they have no natural fear. And then the, the flip side was that actually, because of irresponsible people and tourism and also local like councils that weren't looking after the, the trash, you then have human-wildlife conflict. And that actually resulted in, I think it was over 80 bears being killed that year. And mm-hmm. they're not specifically picked. They're not the mm-hmm. older bears that have already bred. They're probably going to be cubs nine times out of ten because it's learnt behaviour. And for me, that was just like absolutely shocking. Like, how can it go from what would have been 20-something bears, that probably would have been older bears because, you know, let's face it, that's what people go after. They want the big trophy, yeah. Of course. And, and also, they, they, bears, they might not even have managed to get that many of them because bear, they would have developed a natural fear of people instead, which wouldn't have been as easy for people to see them, to take their photos, but it would have meant the bears were more protected. And this is something that's always really, really concerned me in my job as a grizzly bear naturalist because I always used to think well am I actually doing these bears a favor because I know that they're going to wander I know they're going to go outside of this range and I know they were fairly protected while I was working there in Canada but obviously protections change and I was like they are going to be habituated to people they're going to have no natural fear and Mm -hmm. you get one with a gun it's actually you've made the hunter's life Mm -hmm. very very easy so that's that horrible gray scenario where I think that's where conversations have to happen that's no, I totally agree with you, man. I think the the habituation component of predator management is is a huge deal, right? Yeah. Grizzlies, leopards, lions, that kind of stuff. It's uh, you, you bring up a good point, and I think that's it's almost the side of it that nobody talks about. We try to talk about it, but you know, when when you when you say we want to ban a predator hunt, mm. mountain lions in California, black bears in New Jersey. I don't know if you follow it, but black bear in New Jersey has just been completely banned. The counties in New Jersey have the highest density of black bears in all of North America. Not the size of the population, but per you know per square acre or per square hectare, there's more bears in New Jersey than anywhere else in the United States. Yeah. And they banned the full bear hunt because the governor, when he ran for political offices, office, said that this will be the last time people hunt bears in the state of New Jersey. 
<laughs> and to your point, you know, the, the, the tag quota for bears in New Jersey is probably 80 bears, 90 bears, mm-hmm. 100 bears. But this year, there's probably going to be 200 bears killed. Because of the human-wildlife conflict. Because of, you know, depredation permits. You know, people are going to complain. They're going to complain to the local sheriff's office. They're going to complain to say, this bear keeps getting in my trash. Come take care of it. Yeah. And this is also the side of it with the wolves that we're talking about with, with Jess. And it's so easy for myself and other people that live in an area, especially England. I mean, in England, let's face it, we annihilated all of our big predators. We've got none left. We have zero big predators left. So when we go to places like America, Africa, Australia with the Great Whites, you know, for us, it's like paradise. It's like, oh, my God, this is what nature's supposed to be like. This is amazing. You've still got the big predators. It's a huge novelty. It's a huge, like, wow awesome you need to keep them there but we're not the ones that are living alongside big predators and and i think that was another one of those little little coin drop moments i was sat in in um the cic in in the the big uh one of the the big rooms you know where they have a panel talk going on and um it was it was talking about human wildlife conflict actually um and they covered uh the the situation in kenya in that you know since they banned hunting actually the wildlife there um in terms of biodiversity and and population of wildlife has actually gone down rather than up because yeah, plummeted. it doesn't have a value um so people people don't want to live in risk and fear of being around a big predator if it's not benefiting them why would they want to? And we judge that and think it's terrible. But then at the very same time, I was also listening to this man who'd put his hand up from the audience and he um, was was one of the people in charge of paying out families that have lost relatives because of big predators. And his back wow. was five years and he was really stressed. He was an oldish guy and, you know, what 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 horrible job that you have to do anyway but knowing what their budgets were to pay people out the the children that were eaten by lions i don't know if you heard about that there was a number of children and um, that were playing together attacked and eaten by a lion they got 500 um dollars each per child that's what their life was worth in this scenario and then of course you've then got people that are losing livestock and the poorer people right. are always the ones that are you know hit worse because to be able to claim for the livestock um i was i asked the question actually because there was a lady from from namibia representing that scenario to be able to claim for the livestock you have to be able to prove that you've taken adequate measures to protect that livestock and i mean it's an observation from a idiot westerner that's just happened to go around these places and i could be totally wrong but i've seen a lot of poorer people that have had to graze their livestock in public areas and mm-hmm. they probably don't have the lovely fencing structures and the, the way of ways and means of being able to protect these creatures. Although they're sending, you know, she said that they were sending government officials around to, to train them, but that to me just felt like a tick in the box that you're doing to train people and then not have to pay them out because you can argue that you train them. But real life, I don't fancy my chances of protecting, you know, three, right. three cows from a hungry lion. 
if it's just me and a bell that I'm trying to ring or something like that, you know, reality of the situation is it's always the poorer people that are, that are being affected more because then the proportion of their livestock and their lives earning compared to somebody that's got a whole ranch of animals it's going to hit them harder. And then there's a backlog in all these places to be able to claim for it. The paperwork to do it's really, really hard. So it's like all of these extra things that nobody ever talks about, nobody ever thinks about. And then, of course, you've got the situation that if a hunter's not taking the shot, conservation organisations still have to do calls. But we mm-hmm. talk openly about calls. Or we actually label them as calls in a positive pro way. But... I think we need to sort of realise that everything in nature, unfortunately, is managed now. You know, we've got to a right. stage... to some degree. Yes, to some degree. And and I think that the bigger underlying issue, you know, that really ought to be talked about if you really want to stop people hunting or you really want to, is how on earth do you stop urban sprawl? How do you stop the population going in such a crazy size that we're not going to have to interfere with nature and then how do you protect somewhere based on its intrinsic value alone because everything at the end of the day comes back down to money it's just so complicated carbon credits right carbon credits saves it's going to it's going to save the world this is it (laughs) this is it isn't it i mean it's like it's such a in-depth gritty topic that needs to be openly discussed but it's never happening because there's so much feminine opposition on both sides, you know. And and it's not something. It's quite interesting because I also Melissa was uh, Melissa Marquez was on this group with us. Um, and funnily enough, we we've known each other for the last year, um, you know, digitally without realizing either of us were going to be there at the right. situation. Um, but we spoke because both of us. Um, I mean we have a background with sharks and there's a very parallel crossover between fishing and between hunting. I mean, I personally have, have sort of been out and, and filmed um, with uh, a project called American Shark Conservancy out in Florida um, where they're working with the the great hammerhead fishermen who do it offshore. So they're the one organisation in that area that have managed to be able to open that conversation, open that door to work alongside the fishermen. And mm-hmm. all they do is let the fishermen do their thing and then jump in and stick a sat tag on the fishermen, take a few measurements as they're taking the hooks out. Um, because, and the reason that the fishermen are letting them do it, and the reason they've been able to do that is because, again, empty boxes that rattling away people that have a very solid, you know, poignant point of view but maybe don't necessarily and aren't open to discussion on that, want these kind of sports banned outright. And and Hannah's one of the few people that's like, well, these are all opinions, but where's the evidence? So mm-hmm. so the idea is to just decide, you know, how many of the sharks actually do survive and how many die from a sport like that and how realistically can you improve their odds rather than banning it outright is there a way of changing the kit changing the days that you fish changing the bait right. you know, and having it right. as natural logic explanation you know it i think there just needs to be so much more and more of that being a journalist yourself the that that you know it is a mind-blowing exercise when you start really thinking about human wildlife conflict and mm. the people that it affects and the and almost it's it's the fringes right it's almost like the rural people get um 
sort of unfairly impacted. Unfairly is the wrong word. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm lost for words because it's 5.45. <laughs> um, they're just, you know, it, it, it is a, it's a skewed relationship between human-wildlife conflict between a rural community and an urban community. Yeah. And it seems like you were significantly impacted by these sort of revelations that is like, whoa, I had no idea. So as a journalist yourself and a filmmaker and whatnot, how do we how do we tell that story better? Like how do we get that into the empty boxes that are rattling around yeah. in the in in the urban environment of the UK, for example, UK. which is a very loud chorus, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. It's a very privileged situation to be in, you know, to be in an urban environment, to have not got a care in the world about being eaten by any predator, you know, and also to still want nature to be fully intact on those few days where you come to visit. It's a very privileged position to be in um this is a conversation that we we were having and it's 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 difficult it's difficult like i would love to say you know it's just people like me going out finding the stories making the stories and putting it out there but it's not because the problem is funding you know i would there are a hundred stories that i want to go out and make on the back of this but finding funds to do it is difficult. If I get funded by, you know, Blaza or a trophy hunting brand, everyone's automatically going to say it's totally biased. If I go to one of the usual brands that I have worked with, for example, Iceland's Green Machine, I, I worked with Blacks and Berghaus, I haven't had this conversation, I may be talking for them, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the risk of them putting out something that is a a very diversive topic is a very big risk to their brand in terms of backlash from people that probably won't even watch the film, but will have a a big opinion on it and will want to voice that, you know? So, so the fear of backlash makes that very tricky. So the only other option you have is of course, then to approach places that are happy and brave enough to put that out there. Now that, if you can tell me enough of those, you know, those kind of places. Well, I think you've got to find a place. And, yeah. and, and the reason I, a lot of people like, you know, they don't understand the, there's a method to our madness or my madness. Mm. And um, I, you probably don't know much about blood origins, but our mission statement really is to convey the truth about hunting. Yeah. And I'm completely okay with someone not putting hunting on a pedestal, if there is a reason for it not to be sort of up there, if there's an issue, if there's a, a something that is, needs to be addressed. And that's the kind of thing that I would fund. That's the kind of thing that Blood Origins would fund because, mm. especially for someone like you, because you're a non-hunter. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm purposely investing in someone like you because you're going to approach it not the way that I would approach it or the typical hunting community would approach it. And I could, I could argue that whatever comes out of what you found or what you do is completely unbiased. And it may be that someone goes, oh, no, because you got hired by a Blaza or yeah. SCI or, oh, you're going to be pro-hunting. Honestly, I think that that's where it's almost like we got to say, I don't care what, I want you to tell the truth. Mm. Well, and the truth is going to be best, best for everyone. Yeah, 
yeah and and as i say it's a conversation right it's not i don't think that there is like a whiter than white everything's perfect scenario for either side personally right i think hunting can be a useful management tool in amongst a lot of other useful management tools and it should have a voice at the table you know that's yeah i don't see that as the be all end all fix but i do see how useful how much money it brings in and i think it's absolutely madness if we try to say that it isn't useful and it doesn't bring in money and we're just coming up with like fake counter arguments that just aren't just aren't true um but you know the same the same the same conversations on the other side of the fence need to need to happen too you know the i think it there's that's another thing i've really learned in this in this trip is that there's so many different types of hunters you know, mm-hmm. different types of people. And it's the same in the conservation world. There's so many different types of conservationists. There's so many, and there's so many people, you know, that go in it for the right reasons and lose their way a little bit, you know, one way or the other. I think every every industry is the victim of egos here and there. Um, so, yeah, it would be really cool to do, to do something on that. Uh, it's necessary. It's not even really mm-hmm. cool. It's necessary to do something. Right, right. No, it's, it's just, it's, it's also... Again, you know, as you said, there's different people in different mm. in every community, and I've always been of the of the opinion that the motivation of someone I can't change. I can't change your motivation of why you hunt. It may be because you like to kill a lot of shit. Mm. I can't I can't change that. But what I can focus on is the consequence of you enjoying killing. And again, I'm saying that very purposely because yeah. there are people who do that. Yeah. Um, but there is a consequence to that action. And that consequence is very, very positive. Um, even though you don't like the guy or the gal, and yes, he may be or she may be very, very rich. There's a connotation there, but there is a consequence that is tangible. I still think, though, that is, although there is a consequence that's tangible and it is obviously the most obvious one, especially. I mean, let's let's talk about, let's put it out there. The thing that really pisses everyone off, and I shouldn't be swearing as a children's author, maybe you need to bleep that out, I don't know. But the thing No, that, you've really dropped the F-bomb earlier, so geez, come on. The thing that really, really um, upsets people the most is these ridiculous pictures where you see of the, you know, that are posted probably on places they shouldn't be shared you know if you want to make that for sure have that picture for yourself but maybe don't put it out there as a reflection of look how masculine i am or look how successful i am even though i totally i can understand why these pictures are taken i can i've 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 shark fished because i have to because it's part of my job but i know there's a thrill in catching something really big and having that fight and thinking wow i've outsmarted something I know I understand that buzz. I understand that thrill. But there is um, something within the hunting industry, maybe that that needs to take responsibility to say, you know, this isn't this isn't this day and age is not the the reputation. This isn't the picture that we want to portray of ourselves. We want to be able to be open to dialect. So we need to sort it out from the inside out too, and sort of direct ourselves in a way that, you know moving forward that we are approachable that we can tangibly explain for anyone why we're why we have an important role within nature so you, as a non-hunter you think that's the biggest plank in our proverbial no, eye? no 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 i think 
you need to find a way, and this is going to be the most controversial thing that probably a lot of hunters might not like, but I think that the money is placed on the wrong thing. I think that the money is clearly important, very, very important in the industry. The industry brings in a lot in terms of nature protection, conservation, protecting an area, breeding of animals. You know, I could go further into it. You guys already know, right? It does bring in lots and lots of beautiful things. But I think that I have a theory and I'm, I'm writing this up currently actually and it could be so far wrong but this is literally from me observing from the outside in right I I don't do this sport but I watch it and I've observed it and this is this is my potential theory on it is that I don't know whether you should be able to buy essentially the right to an animal you know what I mean of a certain size and caliber because let's face it it is then it's it's also based on you know how much money you've got in your back pocket. It's not your skill as a hunter. It's how much money you've got in your back pocket to take some of these tickets, right? Of certain animals, right? Yeah, right. But for me, if you put that money straight into a tag, which is just essentially a dead animal, you know, you deserve the right to shoot that animal. You've bought it. It's not then placed on the experience. You know, it, it should be more on the experience because. It should be on the the absolute thrill of being in nature. It should be in you progressing in your sport, right? This is, I mean, I feel like it's still early for me. It's not early for you, but this is... Yeah, it's just a payment model, right? You're, yeah, you're talking a about a, a model. right? So, so this is what I, I can only relate it to what I know. Look, I, I surf. I don't, I don't hunt. I don't do anything. I surf, all right? And I'm not an amazing surfer. I'm just an all right surfer. But my God, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I spend hours and hours and hours getting smashed up by waves, you know, getting a bit further back and progressing just a little bit each time. But every tiny bit I progress that I've worked my ass off for, every little tiny progression is like a huge win to me. I get so okay. much endorphins and it just makes me want to go more and more and more. And I want to protect that whole ocean, that beach break, that place, its it means a lot to me because I've spent my time earning the right to be there. If I was to strap my feet with a lot of money onto a board and get pulled out into a barrel on the same wave, you know, could happen. If I, if I was in a position where I, I could buy the skills, you know, the right to be there with a pro surfer who has worked their arse off to be there and has mm -hmm. more skills than me, I know that one, I would not get the same endorphin kick that they get from being out there. Two, I wouldn't have connected to the place as well as they have from being out there and putting all those hours in there. Right. And three, I probably wouldn't feel worthy of doing it. So although I would get an endorphin kick, I probably would have scratched the itch, but I wouldn't have really dealt with it the same as I would had I not earned my way up and, and really sort of climbed the ladder, you know, like any sport, those little wins, you work at it, the more you love the sport, the more you respect the sport, the more you're into it. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. If it was just a case of I just had the right money and I knew the only difference between me and that person is a better board and a better this and a better that, would I really care so much about the sport? Would I really care about protecting it? Would I have the same connection and thrill? I don't think I would. And, and I feel like that could carry across to trophy hunting i wonder if actually 
you know, if more of it was placed on the experience of gaining these amazing skills from specific trackers, you know, the best in the industry, or gaining, you know, like really um, great time and knowledge of, of all the taxa in the area at the same time, you know, really homing in to the point I feel like that's going to scratch the itch a lot more than than sort of flying in, having a shot that's already been lined up for you by someone else, knowing that you couldn't get that yourself. You couldn't get that sure. yourself because sure. you wouldn't be comfortable being in that environment on your own. You wouldn't be able to find that animal. On you. All kudos to you if you could, like, but a lot of people also don't have the time. You know what I mean? What's going what's gonna to make you feel more accomplished, one or the other? And, and I right. feel like the, that maybe within – what it starts that was another thing that blew my mind is how trophy hunting started in the first place i was sat you know next to a lovely wise gentleman um who was very friendly and who i had a lovely conversation with and his explanation for trophy hunting was it originally started to encourage people to take a second before taking the shot you know yeah cultural value on changing it was a changing cultural values away from purely meat hunting to hey let's 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 look at how we can grow this population by selectively taking and and also like you know when things were purely meat hunting you know then you were doing it it wasn't necessarily just a sport it was a way of living right you know you were doing it and a lot of people still hunt like that that's still a a type of, of person that goes out and hunts and they put the meat in their freezer right and that's what they eat and it's it's more respectful way for them to kill an animal than to have something that unfortunately has been factory farmed and and had a Mm -hmm. horribly long journey and then gone to a slaughterhouse fair Mm -hmm. enough can't argue with that Mm -hmm. but but you know when it comes to like shooting an elephant or shooting something else if we just made it too easy is it you know is that also a problem that's then with certain people connecting less because let's not pretend that every single hunter is a brilliant person or every exactly. conservationist is a brilliant person. Or every or surfer. scientist. You know, every surfer. You or every surfer is a brilliant person. And, and, you know, this doesn't just carry across to surfing. Surfing is the analogy that I'm using right now, but I think about it in my work. The, 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 the parts of my work, you know, that I'm most proud of or the things that I've done aren't necessarily the things that came easiest. It's usually the things that I really worked on that people didn't believe in you know? hundred <laughs> percent. No, and I think, it again, we've touched on this already, and maybe this is the crux of the matter, is that there's a gradient of people. Mm. And a great when, you always, when you're dealing with a gradient of people and a, grade, a gradient of motivations, you're going to have people on that spectrum that, yes, are absolutely in it for the experience. They want to get those endorphins. They want to do something that's harder every single time. They want to test themselves. They want to push themselves. And, you know, for instance, an elephant hunt could be as simple as you get off the plane the next day, you shoot an elephant. Mm. And there's people that like to do that because then they want to get back on the plane. They want to go back home. And they did it. There's others, though, that want to walk 15 miles a day for 10 days and they want to kill that elephant on the last hour of the last day and to them that was why they did it is they felt they earned it they They felt that they earned it they felt like they did it but again that's a motivation right that's a that's it's an individual motivation of someone saying i want to earn it i want to understand it i want to feel it i want to be in the moment versus someone who's like you know i work bloody hard i work 
80 hour weeks, 90 hour weeks, I get four days off a year, mm-hmm. but I've earned a lot of money and I want to go hunt an elephant in those four days and I want to kill an elephant and I want to come back home. Yeah. And it's not so much that they haven't earned it in a totally different way and that they've earned it, like you say, money in the back pocket. They've worked for it in a different way. Mm. But when you're talking about preserving and protecting nature, that person that's trekked for 10 days, eight hours, 10 hours a day, has observed more around them, probably had more spectacular experiences in that world around them, probably connected and bonded. And, you know, if they didn't catch it, might have come back again, you know, in which in which scenario do you think that the person's going to want to protect that habitat more? You know, it could be both. I feel like hard to believe that the person that went there for three days is going to have as many amazing experiences and mm-hmm. and also have learned as many skills or brushed absolutely many skills. Or it, it was interesting hearing some of the people um, like Jess is absolutely lovely when she describes as well though. Like, for a start as well how many was it 15 years as a ballet dancer before she became a hunter right. what right. it's an enigma anyway um but when she describes to me um hunting as a non-hunter listening to her it totally makes sense when she describes um how she feels walking in to um wilderness and listening to all of the different sounds of the bird songs and feeling the wind and smelling the smells i mean let's face it we're animals at the end of the day you know Correct. it's such an innate experience and and we do you know we do describe going walking in a forest as a form of therapy you know we do describe this and this is to some extent you know the experience of of hunting properly hunting you know when it's you on your own in nature against the elements, listen to all that things, it does very much sound like just a, a, a totally innate natural thing that I think most people, after mm-hmm. a, a period of time of being exposed to that kind of thing, even if you were just hunting it to see if you could find the animal, I think would have a better a better appreciation of nature for, for doing that that side of it, potentially. Probably yeah, totally agree. And it's got a better story. Exactly. It's got a better story to um, changing perceptions, which is what we started this whole conversation about, changing perceptions <laughs> around who hunters are and what hunting does. Mm. But I do think as well, um, you know, there's two two sides of the, the table and, and, you know, as much as hunters have to take responsibility for the reputation that goes out about them. You know, there are things within your industry that you could change. The same goes for conservationists and people in in my world. Like we need to take responsibility for why we're so black and white and vehemently against and why, because a lot of, there's so many people, my friends and a lot of people I speak to are very open about it, but will they, you know, the ones in the public light, do they want to really put their voice to it? It's scary for the reputation, you know, and we need to take responsibility for that too, to, to be the ones that can say, look, let's have the conversation, you know, let's let's be open to taking a little bit of a risk and, and, and having a having a talk because, you know, hunting is just one, you know, one thing in all of the many different things, um, you know, all the many different things going on that aren't black and white mm-hmm. <laughs> now that are very much... Um, important conversations that need to be had, especially in terms of moving the world forward with conservation. So, yeah, 1,000%. <laughs> I agree 1,000%. Well, um, from not knowing you from a bar of soap, 
to 45 <laughs> minutes later, having dug into your conservation soul. Um, I very much appreciate you, Sarah Roberts, and I hope this is the um, first of many conversations. Hopefully one on your side of the pond soon, eh? Now that, now that COVID's easing up and uh, travel's becoming a bit easier. I oh, yeah, no, I'd need to be in the UK. I should be. Um, last year, this time, I actually had... Uh, was going to do a, just like Jess did after CIC, I was going to come oh, to a red Scotland. stag hunt with ponies in Scotland. I mean, that's uh, something so, we haven't even talked about. But yeah, removal of big predators and then management of that. How do you manage that? You can't just let it all go. Yeah, could never. Well, that's a, that's a rabbit hole that we'll have to keep for another day. How's that? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. We need more of you. We need more non-hunters that critically think. Yeah, hurts your brain after a while, though. <laughs> it does. It hurts my brain every single day. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you Sarah. So much. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. For Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.